the name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one in the back. Hello everybody, you are listening to the Good Day for a Movie Podcast. I am your host Jacob, and for the moment, I'm all you've got. We had delusions of grandeur and had planned to do a few minutes about this being our 100th episode. Cover some of your feedback that you left during our Oscars competition, and talk about some of our favorite episodes. Life got busy, but that will be coming at some point. Livestream maybe? See you on YouTube? That sounds like a good time to me. I would like to take a moment to pat myself and my co-hosts on the back for actually releasing 100 episodes. Apple's podcast library has 2 million podcasts. 26% of them have just a single episode. 64% have fewer than 10 episodes. I don't know how many get to 100, but I would have to imagine we are in somewhat rare company and for that I am proud. I am also proud of my co-hosts. When I told Tate we should start a podcast, he didn't laugh in my face like maybe he should have, especially because I didn't have an actual idea. After many beers, many nights of me crashing on Tate and Sage's couch, many, I'm sure, annoying phone calls, we finally decided to talk about movies. The actual plan for picking each movie was easy. A bit ironic, I suppose, because that's always a hard decision to make when you and your pals sit down to watch a movie. We said we will just switch every week, and on the fourth week, we would either have a guest or do some sort of special. None of this was the hard part of starting the podcast. I was in radio school. I knew the equipment we needed. I also knew we needed a third mic. Enter... Yeah, that's right. At the beginning, I had to go through and bleep out every time we said Sage. That was brutal. Getting him on board was not that easy of a task. One stipulation was that we would never do a musical. The closest we came was The Muppets. Man, I love The Muppets. I still want to pick a real musical, you know, like a Sound of Music or something like that. Anyways, back to Sage. I knew he would eventually be great once he got the hang of things and became more comfortable with his own voice. Tate knew it too. I'm proud of the co-host Sage has become. Everything Sage says, he puts a lot of thought into it. He's a slow talker. He challenges Tate and I to think different about movies. I think he has really come into his own, even if he still won't admit to anybody in real life that he has a podcast. We're working on that. I'm proud of the co-host Tate has become. Tate has never been a guy that is shy about his opinions, movie or otherwise. And that's awesome. I think he's become much more refined in how he says it and how he delivers those opinions. I think I have as well. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where I've grown. Um, one of those two will have to say that. Maybe I haven't. Maybe I plateaued before this thing even started. Who knows? I am also proud of the fact that we haven't missed a single week yet. I think Sage has only missed a handful, a few because of travel, one or two because he really didn't want to see the movie. Tate has only missed two? One was our most listened to episode ever, the Sage and Jacob Variety Show. That was a whole lot of fun. We need to do another one of those, maybe with Tate even included. 
and the second Chocolat. We're not going to get into that again. I'm about 99% sure that I have only missed one episode. An episode that was recorded in secret back when we only had three mics and we were doing it in person. Tate thought it was a good idea to leave out a co-host for guest reviews. I shot it down, he did it anyways. Tate's a maverick, I guess you could say. I don't think I will ever be able to truly enjoy A Clockwork Orange because of that, but hey, that's okay, it truly is water under the bridge now. I would also like to thank every guest that has came on. Bear with me, I'm going to name them all because I really am appreciative. Caden Strand, Tyler Colburn, Zach Mouton, Jack Carroll, Kale Loudermilk, Michael Nip from the Deucecast Movie Show, Ashley Habros, Brian Thompson, Elspeth and Catherine Schmachtenberger, Nick from the Podcast of the Wills and Heroes of the Mom CU, Ozzy Nate, Nate Ockenhaus, Connor Davies, and finally Chris Todd. Each of you truly elevated the podcast each time you were on. Finally, and maybe most importantly, I would like to thank you. You, the listener. Most people say they would be doing this if it wasn't for you. But honesty time, I would still do this if we had zero listeners because I love movies, but more importantly, I like to talk to my friends. That being said, I can't put into words what it really does mean to me that people really do listen, seem to enjoy it, and it means even more when people reach out on the various channels that were available. Enough nostalgic mumbo-jumbo. We have a really, really good episode in store for you today. We have one of Tate's friends from Austin on the podcast, and man was I impressed. I hope you enjoy. All right, we are now joined by Chris Todd, um, acquaintance of Tate's. (laughs) acquaintance all right (laughs) same same nice um chris thank you so much for joining us we've heard a little bit about you i know that you used to manage some alamo draft houses tate was sending texts while you guys were having some beers beforehand about uh you're now steven spielberg and producing movies (laughs) and that you're the biggest guest that we're ever going to have on so i'm glad that this hundredth episode could be our mountaintop (laughs) i talked about that too (laughs) No Thanks. pressure. Yeah, no pressure. You're well. I no, no pressure. Whatever. I'll just run with it. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's perfect. It's great to be Chris, here. Chris, how are we doing? I'm good, man. Yeah, this is fun. I'm glad to be here. Good. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I am very excited. All kidding aside, about biggest guests you may be. Yeah. So down here in Austin, um, the restaurant I work at met Chris through that, and um, just told me that he was big film buff, and so that started the conversation, and then now we are here. Um, but I've, I've had a couple conversations with Chris about movies and stuff like that. Um, and then when I asked him to be on, he was just like, for sure, no doubt. Um, and very pumped to when he sent in his pick and that he said he's going to be on. So, yeah, I mean, now we're here. But I think awesome. if we want to start with our three quick questions for him, yeah. I can go ahead and go first. I don't know if you guys got your questions prepared or not. Um, but I, I had a question, but I think it changed based on the beers that we had. Um, (laughs) so now my question is, you said that in the production process or like in the creative side of making movies, writing is one of your favorite things. Where do you draw your inspiration from as far as like maybe a movie or a a style movie or maybe like a director or a writer? Um, like where, what's, what's an example of a movie that you draw inspiration from for writing? Uh, wow. That's, Wow. That's a really great question. I um I always start with the characters first, but like I, someone that I I really look up to and think about a lot, and especially like recently, there's two, um, but I probably uh, John Milius and uh, Shane Black. Like those are the two, 
those two guys, their writing style, as far as the way they write dialogue in film, those guys have had more of an impact on me probably um, than anyone because uh, both of them, and they're very different, but both of them write dialogue that is what would be like movie dialogue. Like it, it, it's a little elevated. It's kind of heightened. But it also feels really honest to the characters. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar, but like Shane Black, like he wrote Lethal Weapon when he was 21 mm-hmm. and, and sold it. <laughs> and then went on in the 80s to become, in the early 90s, to become maybe the most prolific like screenwriter, specifically for action cinema um, in the business. And then he crashed like really hard, a lot of like drug issues and whatever, everything stopped working came back with a movie called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that he wrote and directed with Robert uh, um, Downey Jr., which brought him back. But um, the way he writes characters and how fast everyone is and the, 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 and how, like, not only is it funny and quippy, but how character-revealing all of it, is, like, his dialogue is. It always pins into that. You're always learning about the people as they speak. So none of it is just, like, funny and quippy and fast for the sake of it. You're, you're getting a window into these people. And Milius, the way that he wrote, was like big and mythic and expressive. It was almost like, like he was almost like the Ernest Hemingway of like, you know, film writers. But he worked inside of like a mythic kind of like area that I think is, that is just hasn't really been replicated since. I mean, he did like um, Conan the Barbarian, the first one um, in the early 80s. And, uh, he did a few drafts of like the hunt for red October and a few other things. And he's, he's apocalypse. Now he was a part of, he did an early draft of apocalypse, I think, but he didn't end up doing that. And that movie moved through a lot of oh. people. It moved through George Lucas and mm-hmm. eventually landed on Coppola. Milius was involved at a point. Yeah. But like Milius is, is I think his writing is like so powerful and like specific. And it's the opposite of a Shane black where Shane is, wordy and it's about the rhythm of the dialogue versus Milius is like really choosing words and syntax specifically for impact, you know, and I think that's really hard to do. And I, yeah, I think about those two guys a lot when we're writing, depending on the project, like every project's different. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, I think about those two guys a lot and like those, like those are the two I kind of like carry with me. They're always in the back of your head when you're, yeah. Writing. Like yeah. I th- yeah. Like I think a lot about that story, the story that Spielberg tells about the working on Jaws and needing a speech for Quint to tell, to understand who he was. They didn't have anything. And he called John Milius because they're buddies. And was like, hey, will you write something? And he wrote that entire speech about the ship at night and the sharks and all of that that Quint tells when he's drunk. It was like five pages of monologue. But you watch that scene and it is like you think about that scene. Like, he is that way. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into her side, Chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady. just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. Vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. 
but we didn't know. Was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. <laughs> they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming, and sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. <laughs> You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, it was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura saw us. He swung in low and he saw us too. The young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, oh, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out the sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. And I think that's really, that's, that's where great writing kind of exists. I might have lost a couple points with you because I haven't seen Jaws yet. So, <laughs> well. That's crazy. So, the, I don't know the well, speech it's you're really, talking about, but it's now. It's really good. <laughs> now, I think that speech will stand out to me when I hear it. It would stand out no matter what. I okay. mean, like, it's one of the things that, like, you can't watch that movie and come out of that and not be like, man, that this movie's great, but that scene, holy shit. Because yeah, that was like the best scene in the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the tone of the film shifts for like three minutes. When, yeah, and you you get a window into this guy that seems kind of enigmatic in the film because he's he's kind of drunk and it's at night and they're having drinks so he's like he lets his guard down and yeah. he gives you this window into himself and his history and you kind of learn a little bit of like why he is the way he is. Melius wrote that, and it is it's memorable. I mean, it's it's it is. I mean, it's a great actor doing it too, but like, it's it is, uh, it's a it's a, it's it's a pretty it starts with the writing. Yeah, yeah. 
Cool. All right. For con for context, Jaws was super underwhelming to me until that scene. And the rest of the movie like totally flipped it. And I was like, oh, okay, Jaws is a very good movie. Like the pretty much the movie from then on. Yeah. I absolutely loved like full throttle. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, man. John Millis is the shit. So yeah, that's a long answer, but that's my answer. I like it. Well, Tate, you should have gone last. <laughs> <laughs> a way better question than I have thought of. Sage, do you have a question? I had, I had two beers up? to get to know him a little bit. <laughs> I wanted to like text you guys everything that I was learning. Just go like, this would be a good question. This would be a good question. But yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, kind of wish you would have. Sage? <laughs> Mine's kind of a gamble. Um, it's a two-parter. Have you seen the movie Melancholia? And what Ooh. rating would you give it? Okay, so <laughs> I haven't. And the reason that I haven't was is because with Von it's Tr bad. It, it's that like Von Trier works in a mode, and like I just don't know if like nihilism is where I just want to. Yeah, like I just you know I've seen large chunks of that film because working at the Alamo. I saw enough to know like all right, so this is kind of like he's still working inside of the Antichrist mode. And I've seen Antichrist. It's great. But it was clear to me that for my taste... Oh, man, how do I put this diplomatically? It was clear to me that for my taste that uh, Melancholia was not going to be as affecting for me as Antichrist. So I just never got around to seeing it. And I don't think about seeing it. So I just have to... <laughs> I just, it's not something that's like in the back of my mind. I'm like, man, I really got to watch that. Like, so I just don't, yeah, I haven't seen it. If you ever do, let me it, know your thoughts, but okay, I <laughs> it's will. It's just an ongoing thing. It, it was one of the movies we reviewed and, uh, very split. Sage and I did not like it and okay. Tate loved you it. You liked it. I loved it. Well, Mel, I mean, you know, Von Trier is very like nothing matters. Like that's his thing. Mm -hmm. Like, have you guys seen the big Lebowski? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When like. Walter's like these 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 men are nihilists, Donnie. They're cowards. That's fucking the Montreers <laughs> a little bit. Like that's who he is. Like he's just kind of like he's literally he's like a movie nihilist. And he you know, and he was in that period of his career at the time where like he was kind of like really reveling in that stuff, for good or ill. I mean, I like, read that it was like that was they they termed that like the depression trilogy for yeah. him, which yeah. is yeah, it's like that nymphomaniac and Antichrist, right? Yeah, yeah. Not my thing. Depression trilogy, just not up my alley. Boy, you want to see um, a movie though? Fucking watch Antichrist, man. That shit'll. <laughs> that's a movie. That's what I've heard. Um, okay, so my question: to What is the best um, viewing experience you've had, combining like the actual movie that you got to see and whatever, and where were you to to get that like greatest oh, theater experience man. moment? Like theatrical experience in general, like we're not talking either one, either at home like, or it could have been an at home thing or yeah, whatever movie like, just kind of blew your socks off. Okay, and any aspect doesn't have to be like a so big visual effects no, thing, but yeah, if yeah, it's yeah. a writing, so there's two. Well, yeah, there's two that really like leap to mind, and I mean like, so before I say what the two are, like Alamo for a long time and not so much anymore and not because of the company, but it's really because everything's digital now. So we're kind of like at this even playing field of presentation, but before digital photography or photography before digital presentation was like a thing and movies were still on 35 millimeter, which was all the way up until like 2010, 2011 mm -hmm. when digital really took over. 
post Avatar. Um, seeing a movie on film was a big was you know not a big deal it was common but it was a big deal to see it presented well because it took a projectionist who not only knew what they were doing but cared and like really was like monitoring what they were doing the film print was taken care of and all these things if you did if you lined all that stuff up like bulb temperature bulb brightness focus all this stuff you would get a movie that like had a depth of image that was just kind of like looked like a window mm-hmm. you know so alamo used to do that consistently their projectionists were incredible. These people were, mm-hmm. in my opinion, they were artists. They were so great. And you would see, we would go to see films at the Alamo that were presented in like, on 35 mil in tack sharp focus. Brilliant color. And it was just really mining the most out of the film prints possible. So on a, on a really regular basis, we were getting these like really incredible experiences. Um, but for me... Uh, and I, I don't have one that I can like pull out of like my Alamo experiences that I'm just like, oh man, that one, holy shit, right? But for me, like the two best theatrical mm-hmm. experiences I've ever had in my life are in 1999, opening night of the Phantom Menace. You know, at this point, you know, no one knew that the movie was going to be a bit of a letdown. I was 17. And, um, which reveals my age a little bit, which is fine. <laughs> um, but I remember sitting in that theater and the applause when Star Wars hit the screen mm-hmm. after a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. and cheering was so deafening that we couldn't hear the Star Wars theme playing over the crawl. And that was back in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I still remember that screening. I still remember the people behind me crying at the end when Qui-Gon is dying. I still remember... I remember so much about that film, seeing it and coming out of it thinking I had just seen like the the newest best Star Wars film. And it wasn't until a long time after that I was like, oh, maybe it's not as good. I um, still defend that movie. I, I I don't think it's bad. I think there's things there's things about it that are great, but there's things about it that are not great. But none, yeah. of, none of the things that are not good read for me that night. Mm-hmm. It, it was this really transportive and incredible experience that only cinema can really do. And it really felt like we were tapping into something um as a collective in that room, those 90 people, if there were even 90 people in that theater, you know, that night. Um, but it was sold out, but it's just a small town where I'm from. And I really remember that. I remember that feeling in that theater. And um, the, the next closest thing I can remember was years later in 2019, um, Avengers Endgame. Uh, we, at the Alamo, uh, we would do employee screenings early. And uh, usually only like 15 to 20 people would show up to see the movies because like, you know, mm-hmm. it's late. We'd do them at like 11 p.m. at night on like a Wednesday or a Tuesday. And we had uh, 
at this point, Marvel was kind of at their like, like, their, oh, yeah. their apex, you know, and a lot of people showed up for Infinity War a year earlier. And so there was a lot of buzz around this. And I just remember like, just like Infinity War, um, everyone I worked with in that building in, in South Lamar, which was like, it's like 150 people that it takes to like fully staff that fucking building, man. It's, mm -hmm. it's an operation. Everyone showed up for Endgame. Everyone showed up for Infinity War as well, but everyone also, the week, they all were back for Endgame. And I, I will never forget that night. On your left. And the cheering and the, and the communal crying and mm -hmm. just the like... You've got like a hundred, like absolute, like not just like movie nerds, but like hardcore comic book nerds too, which I am as well. And like, it was this, like, it reminded me of Phantom Menace. It was this experience. Mm -hmm. Like, I just remember being totally transported and just like everyone experiencing the same thing, like together. And it's, 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 those experiences are rare. They're becoming rarer. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I still think about that. So whenever anyone like shits on the Marvel movies, I have to like be like, well, <laughs> they're movies. You can yeah. you can not love them, and that's fine. But there there are there are kids watching those films right now. That's their Star Wars. Mm -hmm. You know, you old fuck. Like, like <laughs> they that feeling you got in '77 when the Death Star blew up. There are kids mm -hmm. that when Cap picks up that hammer got that feeling. Mm -hmm. And like it's just as valid, it's just as powerful. Um, yeah. So th those are probably the two that I think of. Like that's crazy because those are legitimately my two. Really? Wow. As well. Yeah. So I was the Phantom Menace one is kind of cheating, but not really because I so I was four years old when the Phantom Menace released. Yeah. And that is my first real clear memory is seeing that movie in the theater. I don't remember all of it, but I remember oh, certain man. scenes. I remember the Gungans walking through the fog and I have Maul two memories stuff. from when I was like a baby watching movies and their fucking Return of the Jedi <laughs> and E.T. Nice. <laughs> I remember nice. those. They were in like repeat, sc repeat screenings, you yep. know, obviously, because yep. I would have been like less than one for Jedi. But like, yeah, like I, I remember like being really afraid of Jabba. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Yeah, e and then Avengers Endgame. Of me. <laughs> I I was definitely scared of E2, E2 yeah, when e two. E two scared seriously scared. <laughs> scared the living like, alien shit. comes out. I'm fucking running. It was probably like a good fifteen years between me watching that movie. I watched it again for like the first time like two years ago. What movie? I was e like, oh e okay, this is a good movie. I'm I'm glad that I've rewatched this. E T. E T. Yeah, that's great. Yep, that's so funny. Um. All right, shall we yeah, get into I, yo Avengers Endgame? was like incredible <laughs> no tate shut up <laughs> i've got a guy that appreciates marvel I know. yeah <laughs> from like a, a real I level know. not a, not a me and guy that appreciates tell you, star wars and marvel. do you want to yeah. tell you yeah. why is, like i would defend my I'll, I'll tell you like a short story right like because this is the point of this shit i guess so back in 1999 i remember reading with my 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 best friend and he's still my best friend today he's my writing partner um huge comic book nerd it's what we bonded over in high school. Um, I remember uh, reading that there was a, oh my God, they're shooting an X-Men movie. We have, we're like, this is the, this is, oh, I can't, I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, only, the only comic book movies that have been made were DC films, specifically mm -hmm. Batman, right? There have been mm -hmm. Superman movies in the late 70s and, and, and through the 80s, but like those stopped. 
So it was just mm-hmm. Batman movies. And I remember we were really excited and we're following the film and its production and the trailer comes out and it's like, doesn't show anything because they didn't know how to market it. But the stinger at the end was like Wolverine, like his claws popping, right? It was like almost like an insert. You couldn't even see Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. And that was enough. And I remember going to the movies to see it on opening night. We came out, we loved it. And um, we saw it five times in the theater. But I remember telling my Patrick after that first screening, like, we have to see this as many times as possible because this is a Marvel movie. And you realize they'll never do this again. <laughs> <laughs> I remember saying that shit. And he was like, oh, yeah, man, you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. Marvel. Yeah, that's are. awesome. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> here we are with too many Marvel movies. Yeah, now we're just, that's that's how I felt when The Force Awakens came out. I'm not the biggest fan of the whole sequel trilogy, but yeah. getting to see that like a Star Wars movie in the theater because like in 2005 when Revenge of the Sith came out, I was 10. I don't remember going I I'm right. I remember watching it but I don't remember the theater experience. Sure. I watched it with like Tate, I think Sage might have been there, a bunch of my high school friends, my brother was there, and it was the same way. We're just cheers when the star wars logo popped up and i was like this is awesome and that was the last time star wars was on it felt like it was still really special Mm -hmm. it was in that moment and definitely and then like watching the film is like okay Mm -hmm. where are we going (laughs) yep yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. i will take this Mm -hmm. podcast down a whole other fucking trajectory (laughs) if we don't like if we don't we don't like move now. Yeah. yeah derail. <laughs> okay. Derail. Let's, let's get into your <laughs> pick, derail. Chris. Introduce your movie for us. Okay. So I had, uh, I'd hung out with Tate um, and we were talking about, he'd asked me to do this and we were talking and I was just kind of like rattling off movies that I, that I really loved. And not only that I really loved, but it kind of like really affected me when I saw them. And this was one of them. And, and he was like, oh, yeah, no, I've never heard of that. I don't think we watched it. And I wanted to, I, I decided to do, it was between this and and, and two others. Um, I chose this because this one for me was when I was um, in film school. That's when I got introduced to Akira Kurosawa. And like, this was the film that was introduced, was, was the first one of, first work of his that I saw. And this movie for me really opened the door to um, all kinds of things I never, like, I just had never considered watching and opened the door to Japanese cinema, opened the door to art house mm-hmm. cinema, and it showed me what, like, a film can be that's made in, like, 50, 60 years ago and, like, how it can still feel, like, completely relevant and exciting. And um, I'd never seen anything like it, and it really stuck with me, and it's something that I, w- I was telling Tate uh, earlier when we were having drinks, like, I don't really get to share this movie with people because like everyone I know like since then has seen it, you know? So it's, 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 it's kind of a rare thing. So I, I wanted to do this one and I hadn't seen it in a while. Um, so, and, and it, it's, it's been a really long time since I've had a conversation about not only Akira Kurosawa and his work, mm-hmm. but this film specific, because this is his biggest outside of seven samurai. This is it. This mm-hmm. is the biggest film he's made. This, this film was huge for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and anyone who's in, who's interested in art house cinema, like they've seen this, um, this is kind of movie one. <laughs> you watch this one first. And, uh, so I haven't really had a chance to talk about this movie with anyone who's seen it fresh, uh, for a very long time. So that part, that idea was exciting. What also, if our small brains can't like completely comprehend some of the things that 
um, made such an impact on you too. If it comes up throughout, call us out on it. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, man. I this, this I was very excited to watch this movie when you when you sent the text. I was just like, right when you said Yo Jimbo, I was like, whoa. I have no idea what this is. And when I looked it up and I just immediately saw a Japanese film, black and white, the director that you talked about immediately, extremely excited before I even read the synopsis or anything. I didn't, I don't watch trailers usually before I go into a movie. Um, so I didn't watch the trailer at all or if, uh, yeah, but, um, read the synopsis and just immediately was like insanely excited for it. Um, I don't know how you guys felt when the pick got sent. Yeah, I mean, I I am very, very familiar with Akira Kurosawa, but I have never seen one of his movies. Um, I don't know if you can tell, Chris, what is on my wall behind me there, but it's it's the original three Star Wars posters. Big Star Wars fan. You can, couldn't yeah. tell already. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. So Kurosawa was a massive influence with Hidden Fortress and yep. whatnot on not just George Lucas, but then Dave Filoni, too. And he's done like every single thing he's touched. He's done a uh, Seven Samurai storyline yep um and the mandalorian clone wars rebels even um so you should go watch hidden fortress and seven samurai yeah definitely it's they're, they're I, so when i was like okay i need to watch a kurosawa film i was like that was just about the time we were starting this and so i was like dang it i want to save it for this and then i was like i i also want to wait until like we can find a guest that like would understand this and when he Tate mentioned you and he he mentioned Kurosawa because I think we brought him up a few episodes ago at some point. We brought him up because I chose the movie Akira. So then you oh, yes. brought him up and I was yes, like, oh, that's I was exactly just talking to Chris was. about the director. Akira. Yep. Akira. Yep. Um, and so I, I was super pumped when you found it because now this is like I, I can now fall down the rabbit hole and <laughs> watch a bunch of those movies because one, they're all on HBO Max for the most part. And two, they're a whole bunch of them are on the Criterion Collection and their fifty percent off sale at Barnes and Noble just started today. Dude, just buy Seven Samurai. Seriously, I never tell people to buy shit blind. Just buy it. Yeah, I, buy I, it. I'm going to. I think when we finish recording, that's I will be going to BarnesandNoble.com. It's I worth believe. It. Yeah. Sage. Sage. Yeah, uh, I was stoked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was uh, the first movie was like. Because because there was a, you 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 picked a movie before y- Yojimo, R R R. It was like yeah, I had entertained that yeah yeah. It was like three hours long, and I I don't know what happened to me. Um, my ability to watch a movie over two hours has quickly diminished, sure. and I fall asleep like at the two hour mark now. Well, I so I was a, nervous. I had a caveat you- with R R R, and I I was thinking you guys were in town, so mm-hmm. I wanted mm-hmm. to go to the Alamo Village. And uh, watch RRR in the theater. That would be awesome, it, yeah, right? It, and so when he was like, "Oh no, they're not," I was like, then we're not doing it because it's it doesn't have the power on the small screen. It just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another caveat: I go to the bathroom a lot during a movie. <laughs> Major pain, not fun in theaters. Why I watch a lot of movies at sure. home now. Anywho, when it got switched to this movie, I was like, "Hell yeah!" Bury down. That's my story. One hour fifty-two minutes. Let's go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. The other aspect for me, I'm a huge, I grew up on Westerns. That's my, like all my dad watches. Save it for um, the podcast. And so we will get into that on the other side okay, good. about the influence on all of that. But um, so that's the other reason why huge. I knew who Kurosawa was. But yep. um, yeah, we will see you on the other side.
俺を買わんか用心棒にどうだ腕は今見せる<笑>ああ面白いもん見せてるか<笑>地獄の入り口で顔を合わせたこの二人このざまだだから言わねえこっちゃねえ6人ぐらいじゃ手不足だ6人とてもうまく料理されてたなあんないい腕を持ったやつはこの近くにはお前しかいねそれでもしかするとあの6人叩っ殺したのはおめえじゃねえかと思ってね刀かピストルか宿命の対決
they couldn't rely on graphics and like attractive actors and actresses. They really had to like make a good story to keep you um, keep your attention the whole time. And I, this is just another example of that. Like the story was just so well done that it kept your attention kind of from beginning to end uh, without uh, skipping a beat. So it was, mm-hmm. yeah, overall very well done movie. But it's just, yeah, it felt like a Japanese Western, which was kind of awesome. Tate, yeah. your initial thoughts? I, my initial thoughts were that I loved it. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of things I love about it. Black and white, I think, is always just appealing to me. Um, I love the Western kind of vibe of it. I like the um, just two, like the, like the little town with two gangs rivaling and that the samurai is just the, the everything about the story. I just really liked um, and how he was involved in this entire uh, conflict between the two gangs. Um, yeah. I mean, I, there, there's so much about it that I really enjoyed, but yeah, my initial reaction is that I, I loved it. It was a great, it was a great film. And, and so, second time watching it, third time watching it, has this seen it many times? Oh, many times. Yeah. Has there, is there anything that changes about it for you? Uh, no, it's one of those movies that is, um, it's so lean that like once you've seen it, you have seen it, but it's so fun to watch and it's something that, uh, you know, I never, I never get bored with it watching it. And I think there's just so much artistry and confidence in the way that it's made that you just still don't, it's really rare. You see that today. So I always marvel at just the not only the direction in general, but the visual direction of the film and the way that things are staged is is so just impressive. And how, like, you know, with limited technology, what was able to be achieved with just um, blocking and then pan and tilt of camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm blown away by it every time. And that was just the time period that, you know, he was working in in those you know, the fifties and the early, in the early sixties, these films. But yeah. so is there like something that you pick up on watching it this time from the last time? Or is there, I mean, usually I feel like there's certain type of movies where you pick on something new or pick up something new every time you watch it, but maybe not in this film. Maybe it's just, I mean, with this one, it's, it's, you know, I, I hate to say not really. It's not like I absorbed the whole thing. Like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. Good. No, but it's, it's something that like, I just enjoy being in front of it. You know, and something that I, I, I'd, I'd kind of like, I watched it when I watched it this time, because I've seen it so many times. I watched it with a commentary on with a film historian talking about it, which lent like a pretty interesting perspective to it. One of the things that he said that I thought was really interesting was that at the time, you know, like good guys are good, bad guys are bad in movies. That's just what it was. And this mm-hmm. was one of the first times that we like, like mainstream audiences had seen like a lead that was just kind of gray and also just like cool. Like the way he reacted to everything, not cool as, as in like putting sunglasses on, but cool as in like, he's very stoic. So reserved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's um, something you don't really see in Japanese cinema in general. If you, if you go back and watch movies at that time, (laughs) everything is like kind of Kabuki influence. It's very big. Mm-hmm. It's very broad. You know, they're really throwing it to the back row, so to speak. And with this, like, there's, there's, that's what makes the movie feel so modern, too, is Tashiro Mifuni, who plays um, the samurai in it. Um, his performance is so modern because it's so reserved. 
and everything he takes everything with just like in in stride in it until the end when like you know he's beaten within an inch of his life but mm-hmm. um that, yeah well and you you said something there that i think is i didn't i don't know if i picked up on it the first time watching it or just watching it now um but that he wasn't all like perfect and all like a purely good character because he was just basically being greedy and selfish in his own interests right and that doesn't yeah he he was kind of a like he he had his pros and he had his cons he had his good side and he has his flaws but yeah well and, and like yeah even on the um other side even both of the gangs like they they seemed like everybody painted them as pictures of pure evil and like pure destruction mm-hmm. but yet they both seemed hesitant to even cause destruction when they had the opportunity to like or to like like i remember the 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 scene that stood out to me initially was when the two gangs were coming out to like fight and both of them were just like barely inching forward and then every time somebody made a slight move they would all kind of get scared or hesitate and yeah. like like they weren't really like they didn't seem like bad guys they were just wanted to be bad guys sure see i yeah i I took that as kind of a commentary on like they're they're more cowards than um, like brave samurai warriors because they don't like they would prefer to do their fighting in like the back alleys at night. I think a comment was made about that. They're like, we're going to fight them in the daylight. What? Um, Yeah. A noon fight. That was kind of. That's how I kind of took that was that it was a very. like neither side they were like oh shit we're actually going to do this like i don't want to do this like with like everybody out here and everybody watching that type of thing so i don't know if it's a wrong read or not but no i don't think it is there's there's a there's historically uh and at the time like like samurai in japanese films i mean like there's this there's they, they're an ideal right so they're they're, they're held mm-hmm. up to this ideal they're like all they're very altruistic and Mifune's performance of this character in this film as written by Kurosawa is he does things that are self-serving. He isn't always this like idyllic protector of innocent people, you know? And that was something that at the time was like really challenging. You know, that was something that like at the Japanese film audiences hadn't really seen. And those are things that he was borrowing. Kurosawa was borrowing from Western cinema. He's heavily influenced by John Ford. Mm-hmm. That's like his biggest influence. He's on record of saying that. And characters that like Ford was interested in at the time, things he was doing with John Wayne and eventually would like, you know, like lead up to doing The Searchers, which is the grayest mm-hmm. character that he did um, in that that film, you know, it was a straight up like racist, terrible human being. But like he was already like Ford was already dipping his toe in those waters and like doing a sl- like deconstructing the idea of the mythic West already. And like that stuff and, you know, Kurosawa had kind of ingested that stuff. And not only that, but like the way he would frame visuals, a lot of it's borrowed from Ford, um, mm-hmm. at least in his earlier work pre this movie. This movie was kind of like him using telephoto lenses, really maximizing them for the first time, which is where Lucas kind of gets his photography style from in a new hope. If you want to draw that line, yeah. you can, it's a straight line. Um, well, anyway, it's yeah. hilarious that you say all that. Cause I, <laughs> it's gotten to a point where I don't know how to control it. My grandma just comes over to my house <laughs> conveniently when I'm about to watch a movie that we're reviewing. Sure. So she, of course, just stormed my house when I was getting to watch, watch 
Jimbo and I was like, you just want to watch with me? And she was like, what is it? And I said, 1961 black and white Japanese movie. And she was like already sitting down, like as I was saying. <laughs> and uh, after we finished watching it, like we looked at each other and pretty much the first thing we said to each other was like, this was a Japanese John Wayne movie. Like it just Clint felt. Would, but yeah. And well, it I'm, just, I'm just kidding. You know, it, no, it, it, it yeah, felt like exactly a John, right. like yeah. hero waltzes in. Solves the problem, boom. Oh, it's hundred percent influenced by those John Wayne pictures. And then this movie, yeah, was like the term that like people use when talking about Leone's film and this is is ripped off because like he didn't get permission. He just like mm-hmm. assumed, Oh, well, no one will know, and I'll just do this for these American producers. And, <laughs> and then yeah, they saw it and they sued them. That mm-hmm. that was one of the things. Okay, so when you just said like the hero comes in and solves the problem. This movie was not necessarily like that, I don't think. Because I think, like, he... I, I, I made a note of, like, when the um, when the, the peace, the, tr- the truce happened between the two gangs, and he was just like, oh, this is a recipe for disaster. This will be- lead to an even further conflict. That will even be, like, more dead bodies, more blood. Um, and then he, like, continued to, like, create and incite this conflict. And then it turned into even, like, worse things happening. Whereas, like, they burned down the silk factory and then, like, the um, the uh, the sake brewery or tap house or whatever, they ruined that and it flooded. Um, and then the the coffin guy was even out of business at that point. Right. And so, like... Best line in this movie, by yeah. the way. <laughs> Two coffins. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, so, was, it's so good. He was just hard at work the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, he didn't... I And I kind of like that about the film is that he didn't necessarily be the hero that came in and like solve this problem i mean i guess in one way you can say that he solved it but like in another way he kind of like helped just put this town in maybe where it was already going just really fast but um yeah he didn't really solve a problem to me he just kind of helped speed up the process of this town that was already in shambles and now it can regrow (laughs) but when you said hero solving a problem it like triggered me to be like hmm I don't know about that. But that's what he did. I mean, do you He do did you, in his way, but he that, that, that No, he does. I think he is yeah, he is yeah. framed as as as, as a gunslinger and well, the way we would see that. But like he's yeah. framed as a hero and he does like he does things for uh, he he at the beginning of the film when he first kind of like encounters like he comes into the town, sees what's going on, he kind of reads everyone as an idiot. So decide like okay, I'm just going to try and play both ends toward the middle and kind of see how it goes. And then once he realizes what the gangster, the more kind of like, you know, criminal family is doing. Like the more more moral ethical side. Right. He does side with them and then work to kind of end it. And he does. And a lot of that is is what we were talking about at dinner where like it's or dinner, getting drinks, where it's um this movie is a lot of like Kurosawa's kind of like his own point of view on on really like Western the Western world and like the world of commerce invading the more traditional kind of like culture of Japan at the time. And this is him kind of like pushing back against that in his film and creating a, a mythic character. Um, Cause Chris, all wrote this creating a mythic character that would, you know, could be a stand in for his own point of view and can win against, you know, the March of time and progress, which isn't what happened. I mean, you know, Japan became a lot more like the West and that's not something Kurosawa was super excited about. And that's kind of where the the thought is, you know, 
because he you know never said this but like the thought is like that's where this this guy came from this character this movie because like i was telling uh tate that like there is a sequel to this there's a follow-up so yeah like i saw that yeah so it's 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 different uh, what's it called it's called sanjuro sanjuro it's very different um it's not Tone wise, it's very different. I don't want to really go into okay. it. I think you guys just watch <laughs> yeah. it. But it's it's good. It's great. It's not as good as this. But it's it's very much like an artist kind of like returning to something that was a huge hit and then wanting to kind of like do something different with it. Yeah. That's cool. Well going into what you were saying, it definitely was like he 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 was a wanderer traveler, waltzed himself into a big problem, realized basically everyone was idiots. I mean, his actions spoke that when he's trouble went up and took seats to see what would happen. And then Tate seen that he was talking about where they were kind of like bluffing each other and he was just laughing. Like I, it didn't get serious to him until the guy with the gun showed up. Right. Uh, like the son with the gun showed mm-hmm. up and then yeah. like things got serious and he had to elevate his level of seriousness and then it became, it went from like, oh, this would be a fun problem to solve. And I get some free sake out of it too. Okay. Now I'm in this. I need to solve this problem too. Okay. The West. I need to save my, I need to save my boy. My boy's trapped. He's taken game time. Yeah. And something else that's really cool about the film that I never really like put together. I, I knew it, but I never really like cognitively knew it. But I really realized that watching this time is that like the violence is played. It's played serious, but it's also played for laughs. Like when that guy gets his arm lopped off, like yeah. it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Like and it's and it's something that like in 1961 it was shocking to play something not serious like that dismemberment. Like that was like a that no one had done that before. Like no one had done that before. That was like that's that 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 is of all the stuff that this movie does. Like that that is that moment is kind of this movie cracking new ground into like cinema 40 years later. Mm-hmm. I can confirm. I watched it from with my grandma, who's from the 30s. And when that happened, she was like, oh my gosh. And like, grabbed my arm. <laughs> and, and I was like, laughing. he just got his arm lopped up. Like, yeah. What are you freaking out about? Yeah. You're like, I've seen Which Tarantino. <laughs> Lucas paid homage to in yeah, 100%. A New Hope with the, not, not even just the arm being lopped off, but Evazan and Panda Baba. Oh yeah, I know the names. Mm-hmm. saying i've got a death sentence on 21 systems and like bragging about their the crimes that they've committed yeah. that's what i've like, committed every crime in the book <laughs> I, think yeah. that's, I think that's the line yeah <laughs> i did like yeah. that as one of the one of the guys to prove how hard he was he was like you know how hard i am look at my tattoo <laughs> and then like the next one was like i've committed every crime in the book i think my favorite part of that scene is the guy that doesn't really have any dialogue the standing beside the big guy that talks about committing every crime in the book if you go back and watch the film that guy standing beside him has this huge face tattoo of a of like a dice yeah like it's just like a it's just one single die on the side of his face it makes no sense yeah. like it's the most like okay yeah, <laughs> says how hard they're. The they worst. Got oh yeah, yeah. I did like how that big guy was just carrying a mallet, like that was his weapon, not a sword. Yeah, <laughs> he was one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. That guy's. That guy is. Yeah. I love how like visually Kurosawa would frame those wide shots and put that guy dead center 
in mm-hmm. the frame and then everyone else around him. So you get this like this really great sense of scale that he is like three heads taller than everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought that we were going to get a little bit of an Andre the Giant moment um, when uh, our main samurai guy was uh, already captured and beat up and was like kind of going to escape. I thought he was going to have like a um, princess bride fighting the Andre the Giant type of type of scene where he's going to like barely beat the guy and like escape and get out. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, no. That didn't happen. He got he got his. Absolutely yeah. the shit beat out of yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Sage, you actually hit on something that I thought um, was kind of cool is, and it's the, like the elevation of his seriousness in this entire situation because he does come to this town and he is by far the, the wittiest and the smartest guy in this town because he fools everybody. And on the opposite side, one of my favorite characters was the dumbest guy, which was Oh, he was half-wit. so good. Yeah, he was one of my favorites. The half-wit brother that like kind of had the, snaggle too. Oh, like the psychopath? Yeah. The yeah, one that, like, the weird lip thing. Face yeah. I've one that seen said that like he was really strong. Yeah. <laughs> and every time he'd be like, because this guy's strong. <laughs> like every time he walked in the room, he's like, this guy, this guy I look up to. He like had a weird infatuation yeah. with him. Um, <laughs> I liked him a lot, but he was also the dumbest character yeah. out of everybody. Um, anywho, uh, I liked the when you said like the elevated of seriousness in the whole situation, cause he's comes in and he's just like, well, I see that there's the problem is like a lot of people need to die and they deserve dying. I can help out with that and I can get paid doing it. Cool. And it's almost like a cakewalk for him. He's like easy. And then it turns into like the guy that comes in with the gun and he's like, Oh, all right. This guy actually has something that maybe I could like, maybe that could hurt me. Um, and then he has when an he, IQ <laughs> and, he, and he's decently smart among this crowd. Um, and then he runs into the, the wife, and the whole situation with this wife. And that kind of, I think, is that's the what, turning that, point. That's the turning point. For 100%. him, yeah. as far as his he, morals and his and ethics. he gives the money up, too. Like, yeah. that's the big one. Yeah. And, and, and he gives up, like, mm-hmm. that ends up giving up himself, too. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, I think, is a cool way to think about it as far as his seriousness, his seriousness in the situation. Almost, like, it gets him in trouble because he starts caring he almost like was a selfish person that didn't care for anybody else and then it turns into this one outside family and hearing about their story where he just goes shit i can't can't i can't let this one pass up and that's where i think his hero starts to come out yeah well he gets involved like that's Mm -hmm. that that's that's the the arc of the story is he is a bystander and even you look at the way that he's filmed like he's always watching he's never involved he's on like you know this big I he's, love like, that. he's on like yeah. a big pole on a bench. <laughs> mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's like visually, literally, he's over all of it. You know what I mean? He's way above it, way above all of this mm-hmm. crap. And he knows if he hangs out in the town, he'll just be able to make money if he can, you know, like, so he's, that's what he's doing. Um, but then like once it becomes real to him, he gets like physically involved. And like the big turning point is like, is when he, you know, lies. He's like, oh my God, they killed those people. And then go tell the guy. And then he goes in and he kills those people. And now he's involved. Yeah. Yeah, like there's oh. literal blood on his hands. And it's, like, it's and he stuff. was, I liked how he was just like, he was so angry at the family to be like, get, like, what are you doing? Yeah. Get out of here. Make the smart move. Like, like everything that he does is the smart move. And he's just like, he hated how here. stupid they were. Yeah. Well, he hated how. That's a moment too. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You feel the tension because you mm-hmm. know, you know that, that, that the, the crime family or the whatever, mm-hmm. the gangsters or whatever, they're yeah, coming they're right around the corner. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And if that family doesn't leave, oh man, yeah, you feel it. You, you I felt it when I watched it the other night. It's like, oh man, this still works. This yeah. is still really good. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, yeah, that's the thing about it. like the the compassion that the family has. <clears throat> you like are almost mad that they have it because you're like, come on, get out of there. He's mad that they have it. Yeah, he thinks <laughs> compassion is weakness. Like it's it's so clear. Yeah, and it's and it is what ends up getting him caught is the compassion that the family has because like that note that yeah um, the family leaves, but it like. It's 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 so it's done so well because it's hard to be mad at that, but right. yet you are. Yeah. That was that was really well done as far as his character development throughout this yeah. town and this situation that he was in. I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, Tate and Sage. Have you? I, I know you guys have seen uh, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But have you seen a fistful of dollars? No. Yeah. It well, you don't have to because you pretty much seen it now. <laughs> you pretty much just did <laughs> down the it, line. It really is like pretty much like dialogue one is the, the same. Yeah, yeah. places. What, yeah. One difference is that the fistful of dollars opens up with the kid trying to get to the mom, and I was like, oh, that that didn't like happen in this version of it, and like, but pretty much everything else is like beat for beat. The coffin scene, yeah, is and fistful of dollars, like. Yeah, pretty much beat for beat the same exact movie. It was craziness, and like it, it held up U.S. distribution of it because they're like, "What are you doing? This is like the same movie that we made." Like, yeah, I don't know, ten years ago. Well, maybe I need to see yeah. it because I like this movie a lot, and I'm like, I yeah, if any, it's I, really good. I like really it good. a lot. Ten yeah. versions of this movie, just slightly different, and I'd be like, "Fuck yeah!" Yeah, it has. I'm sorry. Three years earlier. It has all of the same hallmarks of this movie, like a charismatic, but like super cool, really reserved lead. Uh, the music's amazing. The photography's mm-hmm. incredible. Like it, it has, it, it has in a different, obviously put through a different prism, but like everything that this movie has going for it, this full does have going for it. I mean, Leone was a master director. Like he was. Mm-hmm. So like the things that work here do work there. And there's like, you know, I think this is better, but only because it created the thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like by default, it's kind of a default thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, do, I, I, but I just, for my taste personally, I prefer this. I think I like this more. And something I didn't know until last night, listening to that commentary, was that. Um. So this is a, this is like a fun like little like tidbit about the film. So you know, like the samurai in the film that's like older. And they're and and he leaves the town. Oh yeah, yeah. Because he's yeah. like, oh, you're paying this guy more. I'm leaving. And they have that moment where like he looks and he smiles at him and he waves. That actor was in Kurosawa's first few films, and then wasn't doing his movies anymore because he had discovered Toshiro Mifune, and Mifune was younger, and he and he'd become a star earlier. That's the that's the samurai in this one. And Toshiro Mifune plays the lead in this. Yes. Okay. So this is. This film is those sequences were put in as almost like a symbolic on-screen changing of the guard. Whoa! And that's why, like, when that samurai leaves, he turns to Mifuni and smiles and like waves goodbye. That's him like handing it over and saying, "All right, you got it. I'm out." Passing the baton. It's exactly. That's, yeah, it's like, in the film. It's crazy. Well, and that's weird because thinking back to that scene <clears throat> doesn't play any part in the story. Like, None. I mean, they could you could cut that out. And it would probably it. would, yeah. Yeah, it's it's Kurosawa commenting on his career. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's pretty cool. cool. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I 
that was an interesting scene because like when um, he comes in, I like the way he, I mean, obviously I like the way he negotiated for his price because it's like simple like economics. If like, if you know your, if you know your supply and demand, like he, he has a huge demand for him. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, or, like, there's I'll just go across demand. the street. Fine. Fuck or, it. Yeah. yeah. Very massive demand. Very little supply. He's the only person that can do it. And there's massive demand for him. Yeah. <laughs> and he was just like, I know my price. And like, wh- I like how they started out with like, Two or three, three. and they got built up to like 50. three Rio. That went way higher than I thought. Fifty thousand <laughs> or fifty or whatever. Yeah, but I like when that guy came in and he like didn't sit at the table or he didn't sit in the same space because he was just like he was like this guy is being paid way more than me. I don't deserve to sit at the same right. be in the same conversation at yeah. that level. That was kind of interesting. I don't know if that's maybe like a Japanese cultural thing, but um. Anyway, I thought that that was an interesting scene. Partly, and it's also that like Mifuni was also demanding like a higher salary than him at the same time. Yeah, when they were working. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, man. They just put the the real the reality of it on the screen, and I and I saw that I, when I read that or heard that last night, I was like, man, that is so awkward. <laughs> like, good for that guy for being good for the, the, guy. The, the bigger dude and being like, ah, it's fine. Yeah, he's like, I'll jump on there. He knew his place is fine. Yeah. It's whatever. But like, yeah. <laughs> Because Mafuni did, did go on to, and at this time was like he was like the biggest star in the country, um, and he became like an international star after this. He was in the running for and was cast as Mr. Miyagi in the original Karate Kid for like a mm. minute, and then they went with Pat Morita because they were like maybe Mafuni's too scary, you know, <laughs> and so they so they walked that back and they got Pat Morita. But like, yeah, Mafuni was going to be Mr. Miyagi in the original Karate Kid. Like, that's a fact. Yeah, he was a big star. Hmm. Yeah, big deal. He was good. He was a very good actor. He, yeah. he played his role very well. Oh, man, if you really want to see that guy absolutely flex, you should see another Kurosawa film. It's a, it's a noir. It's called High and Low. Um, and it's and he plays, he's the lead in it. He plays like a guy who's, whose kid is uh, kidnapped. And it's just him dealing with that and dealing with the ransom situation. It's very simple. It's only in the movie only has a few locations. And you're just with him. It's like the Liam Neeson. There's nothing like no. He does not go after no. There's no I had to ask. I had to ask. You have, no. you have permission to smack him. That's yeah. fine. Uh, I had to ask. But no, like that I think that's Mifuni from what I've seen, and I haven't seen all of his stuff, but that's yeah. the one that's like stand, really stands up. Yeah. Like this is really, really great. I mean, I'm not shortchanging this, but he just has more to do in high and low. There's a lot more to play, and it is. Yeah, this is a very reserved yeah. role for the majority of it. Yeah, and high and low, it just is. It is. Like, there's just so much to it. It's so nuanced, and man, it's. You can say it's, high and low. Yeah, heyo. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Plus, now that you've seen like a Kurosawa film, you're primed. So just dive in, man. Yep. They're all great. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, and so one other thing about like the plot of this movie that I think um, I made a note of that I thought I'd bring up was that. There, for the most part, this film played out um, kind of how, like, at least when I read the synopsis of it, like, the first hour of it kind of played out as I kind of pictured. I was like, he comes into the town. It's exactly what the synopsis said. He plays both sides, and he kind of is getting what he wants. The thing that it, it took the turn where I think when I got really interested was this, um, when he when he got involved with the family, and he killed those six guys, let the girl free, um, and... It was, and but I, I actually did think that he was not going to get caught. 
for the, like I thought he was almost too suave, too cool, too smart um, to ever get caught in this town. And so like when he did, and they just quickly jumped to that scene of him being beaten up on the ground, I was like, oh shit, this just got real. Yeah. So I did like that as far as a plot. I wouldn't say twist, but just like a, a, a direction that the story went that I didn't see coming. Um, because I, I thought the entire time I was like, he's just too cool. He's too smart. He'll, he'll, he'll get his way out of this entire situation for the whole movie. And I kind of had an idea about how it was going to end. And then it totally flopped on its head. Um, and then everything from that, I think I enjoyed 10 times more. Right. But yeah. I mean, I think that's what good movies do. You know, everything's mm-hmm. set up and pay off in film. All of it. If you, I mean, you want to boil down like how movies work. That's how they work. It sets something up and they pay it off. If you can pay it off in a way that's unexpected, that's when you get the great stuff. Yeah, and that's that's why that's where this movie excels because everything is so simple. So you, you mm-hmm. he's created room for himself to do something like that. Well, and like we never see him weak. Yeah, and spend, then all of a sudden we do. Yeah, you spend an hour plus of him just being totally in control. Yeah. So the second he's out of control, like yeah, it, it, it's it's it brings him down to this very this, this low point, and you're yeah, and it's nice to kind of go into the third act just not knowing. Yeah, you know you don't you don't want to think that he's going to do what he does, and in the third act of the film, he does exactly what you think he's going to yeah, do. Yeah. Like he <laughs> absolutely, you know, destroys ten guys, but like they do the work. He does the work to put you in a place of like, well, maybe to question it. Yeah. 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 He, he does the classic Western. Like you, you can make the Western movie be as like ebbs and flows and goes so many different directions, but it, it's almost like what makes it a Western at the end, the good guy comes in and you end on a big, like gun fight type scene or sword fight scene. Since it's a samurai movie, not a cowboy movie. Um, and it, it, it is a payoff and it's, it's, it's something that like a lot of, like, I, I feel like modern movies are at a weird place because like they don't, a lot of filmmakers seem to not want to give the audience what they want, which is fine sometimes, but sometimes you're like, no, just, just give me the big shoot em up. Like good guy wins in the end. And it's a happy ending. Like sometimes an audience just wants that and they, depending on what you did the rest of the movie, sometimes they deserve it. Yeah. I think like with modern film, we're in a place where, you know, filmmakers are working really hard to try and subvert mm-hmm. expectations. And that's a good thing mm-hmm. because, but the problem is like we've seen and the understanding on the other end, I think is that audiences are so savvy. We've seen so much at this point and mm-hmm. in, in media and film is media, whatever content hate that word like it's so accessible so how do you do something that is unexpected so you can surprise people and give them something to talk about you know when it's over and i think like i think that line of thought is 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 good but it's also i think there's there's a way to kind of like think yourself you know into a into a not good place mm-hmm um. Yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but like, I, I the movies are in a strange place now. But they're also like, mm-hmm. you know, then there's movies like the the Top Gun sequel that's out right now. It's just a classic mm-hmm. film made in like very traditional way, and it is great. 
It is great. It's made a billion. Mm-hmm. It's made a billion dollars. It's the first non-superhero movie to cross that threshold in a while. Mm-hmm. That's that says something. Yeah, and then like Tate. you also get super yeah Tate. <laughs> you also get super creative movies like Everything Everywhere All at Once. Like right. that is just like a mind bending experience, and you're like, wow, they just like did everything they wanted to do, and they executed it very well. Yeah. Right. Did you not like the Top Gun thing? They're like giving you shit. <laughs> no, they're giving me shit for it. I he he's refusing it to see it. I so far have refused to see it. Why? You, it's mostly because I think well, I I man, this is gonna go into things. Um, I think that like I hate sequels to things. I feel like sometimes they like push sequels to just to sure. just to for, like a money making machine, like blockbuster films. And I to, agree with that. Like I absolutely agree with Jurassic that. I was, World ner- Dominion. I was nervous yeah, about this like, Top Gun as well. I didn't Top Gun Maverick is no Jurassic World Dominion. It's really good. I yeah. And so I uh, Jacob, I knew when you were gonna see it, you're gonna say you're gonna love it. And I wasn't I was like, Jacob might be biased for it. So I was like, I have to take his with a grain of salt. And then I heard you say that you loved it and I was like, hmm. I was like, okay. I've seen it twice. <laughs> I've seen it twice, twice too. Both times in a Dolby Atmos theater. It's, it really is. It's something else. Well, so that's and so the more I was in the same shoes as you, Tate. Yeah. So and then I heard it from my brother, which I thought he was going to be the one out of. Like I thought, if all three of us would have watched it, Jacob would have loved it. I would have been mediocre. My brother would have hated it. When he told me that he loved it and he thought it was incredible, I was like, "Well, shit, maybe I do." Yeah. No. It's like one of the surprise. It's one of the very few unifying things that has happened in the past, I don't know, 10 years to like American culture. Like it's one of the few things that like everybody seems to agree on. Like, no, that movie was awesome. Like that's what I hear. I haven't heard one one person say it's bad yet. So it's very, very good. I was, I was, uh, really knocked out by it and surprised. And yeah, there's things about it that I, I just, yeah, you just sorry. Gotta see sorry, it. I don't. Yeah, yeah like I'm. I'm <laughs> I know it's. it's it, you don't want to spoil it, even though it's like part of it is like I don't even know if it would matter if it was spoiled, but like it would because it would it would suck to like a couple Definitely of the reveals. You'd spoil it. Like, just like dies. keep the pressure on. You're like you're like uh you're like uh you're like uh throwing something frozen into an instant pot. We just need to keep the pressure. Well, I think and eventually thing- you're gonna thaw and you're gonna. You're gonna it's do true. your job, and you're gonna watch the movie. I mean, like we can we can segue back to to Yojimbo here in a minute, but like I I think like the thing you know I guess what I was trying to vocalize a second ago, it's films now like are made in a way that is everything is synthetic. You know it's fake. You can point out why it's fake, and that's fine. You have to suspend disbelief. Dinosaurs are not real. Lightsabers do not exist. Darth Vader's not a real person. Like that's all fine. Like I can. Mm-hmm. We don't know about dinosaurs. We can. Well, yeah. <laughs> we you can get behind all that, and that's okay, right? What with but like films the way they used to be made was there was like a, a sense of like danger involved in what they were doing, you know? Like you're going to see something where like someone could die. You've been doing this. And um this feels like that. Like they are really up there, they're in those planes, they're going, they're they're flying at that speed. In certain instances, the actors are piloting the planes. It's insane. And you feel you feel it. You actually feel feel it watching it you feel the force and the speed and and all of it and it and it it just you get swept up in it like you just buy in i was seeing it with a friend and i remember in the last 30 minutes and there's big action sequence that goes for like 30 35 minutes at the end of the film and um 
because everything's built to that. And uh, five, five to ten minutes in, my friend leans over and just goes, this is so fucking stressful. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just believe like any moment that these planes are going to crash into each other and they're going to die. Like, and you buy it. Like, you 100% buy it because it looks so real. Because it is. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's something to that. Tate, we might see it when you're here. I might watch it a second time with you. Like, I will was, come down. It was crazy. I I'm I I'll probably I, I will watch it. I know I will watch it, and I have to probably see it in theaters. You do, yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yes, it's it, a, it's I, a big it will be. Thing. I mostly I think also like to tease them a little bit. Like in my in my text message back to them, I was just like, yeah, you'll never catch me watching it. Oh God. One very interesting <laughs> thing about Top Gun Maverick is that it's a reflection of where we've come in film since Yojimbo. Mm, good segue. Wow, <laughs> trying to bring it back. And here we are. Um, oh, man. Well, so real quickly about <laughs> Yo Jimbo. Um, one thing that you mentioned earlier uh, when we were grabbing beers, hashtag save for the podcast, we meant we talked about it a little bit. Um, <laughs> we were talking about the guns, or the gun and the use of the gun in the film. Yeah. Um, and kind of like the the cultural aspect that that has started, like the, the shift, the cultural shift, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, with the obvious, like, symbolic kind of like idea behind the gun is that that's the west infiltrating infiltrating like traditional japan and changing so you even got the pearl handle grip yeah yeah and changing it for the worse not the better um and like he defeats that right but yeah like that 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 is what that is what that is and even like the the way that 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 samurai is dressed like his he's got this like scarf around his neck that's clearly european he's traveled He's like gone and then come back. Um, yeah, he's like a perfect villain for like someone like Mifune's, you know, character who does not have a name, which is great. Actually, he mm-hmm. does have a name. They say his name in the film. They do it was say like it. Eno and Uno. It's, it, it, uh, is it It's Senjuro is his name, I just which is it. why the sequel is called Senjuro. But it's, Kuambatake Senjuro, which... Yeah. Train Mulberry Field. Oh well, yeah, thirty-eight Mulberries town. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Wasn't that the? Like that. What didn't he make up that name? He makes it up on the spot. Yeah. yeah. So like we really don't. Yeah, he know makes his it name. up on the spot. Yeah, he looks out in, out in the window and he's like, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait. So who is Yojimbo? Yojimbo <laughs> means bodyguard. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's Japanese for bodyguard. <laughs> I totally thought his just name was Yojimbo, <laughs> and he just made that name up. Yeah, no. oh, okay, so that means bodyguard. Yeah. All right. Yeah, um, I, it, it made me think a little bit about, because, like, when we watched, he, I mean, you brought it up earlier, like, li- the, the man who shot Liberty Valance, when we, like, in that movie, it kind of is, like, the same idea of, but f- for that, it was, like, the law and the word of the law is starting to change the West, where, like, normally the gun was the law, and then um, Liberty Valance comes through, or, or no, not Liberty Valance, but the, whatever, who uh, Stuart plays. Oh, the the lawyer comes through and um, oh, gives his man. whole speech about the uh, yeah abiding by the law and the word is the law not the gun is the law mm-hmm. and it was like starting it was kind of like it was painting the picture of the shift in the west ransom Stoddard. ransom ransom um, but this movie kind of like seemed like he was starting to paint that picture this movie is more about technology yeah. technology mm-hmm. coming in and changing the face of a traditional mm-hmm. more feudal culture. Yeah, you know, even from the transition of like money, where like it's a 
a barter a, a culture based on barter of rice versus you know exchange of gold mm-hmm. it's like the last samurai Tom Cruise. It's, everything's connected. It's, it's, <laughs> everything's connected to Tom Cruise. It's true. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Full circle. That's the Scientology Cruise. thing that interconnects everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know what else I have on Yojimbo. Um, yeah. You guys have anything else you want to throw in there before we get to some scores? I found it strange that they kept their arms in their, their shirt like they did. And like the yes. gun guy was always like, <laughs> he shot from oh, right yeah. here. Yeah, that was kind of. Yeah. I, I I have worn big hoodies before, and I found that to be very comfortable. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's similar or not, but yeah, I don't know. I'd never seen you know anything like that before either. But there's something that makes like, especially in the case of Funi's character, it makes him like unpredictable. Like he's almost like amorphous a little bit. Like as he's walking, you can't see you don't his, know where arms. his arms. You arms don't know. Are. Yeah. Yeah. That first scene where he's like walking in between the two and like his arms are gone. I was like, wait, what is happening? Does he not have arms? Yeah. And then I he finally just, saw like, him like, and, and they're like that. And I was like, oh, there they're they are. Always what? Folded I'm so on confused. His yeah. Stu- yeah. 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 And there's something too that like, if you get into Kurosawa's films, there's like rules that he had set for his samurai films. Like one of them is that like if a sword comes out, people have to die. Like that that's very much like a hard and fast rule with him in his movies. And he sticks to it his whole career. And it's pretty cool. Like it keeps in his mm-hmm. films, it keeps the swords and the weapons like really dangerous. Mm-hmm. So like when they come out, like it is it's you know something. Absolutely absolute business. Yeah. And um it's it was cool watching it for me again to kind of like I thought I thought about that watching it like man yeah this is he keeps that so like dangerous and scary and and the speed he doesn't relish in it though which is which is cool it's the speed of like how he does how like fast Sanjuro I guess dispatches people and um yeah I really want you guys to watch the sequel because man there's some shit in that that is like wild <laughs> it's it's cool down yeah, yeah definitely gonna have to do that. We might even have to have Chris back on for that sequel. I'd be in. (laughs) (laughs) That and Evil Dead 2, apparently. Yeah. Have you guys seen that? I don't know what that is. Oh, my (laughs) fucking God, you guys. (laughs) Holy shit. Did you say Evil Dead 2? Yeah. Not Evil Dead 1. Evil Dead 2. It's like a Paddington situation. It's... It's it's the movie that, like, made Sam Raimi Sam Raimi. Okay. I gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. I... Yeah, now that you say that, I, I know what you're talking about. I've definitely never seen it, but yeah, I never seen it. It, it, oh, it is now like not a foreign concept. That movie foreign will words. blow your fucking mind. We've we've talked about it a little bit tonight already. Because he was like, like, "Oh, I've never seen that." Like yeah. I was like, I out loud was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, no, that that movie is 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 if you passively like movies, that is a, <laughs> that is required amazing viewing. Oh man, yeah. What is it about the sequel? Sometimes the second one just. I mean, you know, you got extra you the ideas you just can't do, you know. It's, it's a budget thing. You know, Terminator 2 is a lot like that. There's ideas he just literally couldn't yeah. do in the first one. They didn't have the technology to do it. And then the sequel, he got to, to like really go for it, which is why I think it's the better film. Um, Evil Dead 2 is like that. Like there's things on his very limited budget in Evil Dead, which was like 250 k just couldn't do. And then Evil Dead 2, like he had a lot more money and just went 
nuts, went absolutely nuts. Like it's <laughs> it's so untethered. It just feels like you you've cracked open someone's mind onto onto celluloid and he's just like here's what I think's funny and weird for 90 minutes <laughs> just, <laughs> and you're just kind of in it and it's like it's crazy well it's, it's like what you said about El Mariachi and Desperado <laughs> it was like the yeah. first one was like no budget and then all of a sudden they got a big budget yeah except this one's good yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like Tom Cruise has a lot of money it's exactly <laughs> what it's like yeah wow Everything yeah, I'm, I'm glad somebody. I I was at this moment where everything I could think about was just like Tom Cruise popped into my head. I'm glad that somebody else is going through that as well because that's kind of just yeah. Weeks you after watch, watching it, you watch Top Gun. And he's in your brain constantly. <laughs> you guys are going to be on Scientology yeah. classes next. Go. No, <laughs> maybe. Don't I give mean, me, no, maybe. <laughs> no, no. Another. So I don't. We never got favorite characters. I, this might be quick. My favorite character was the. Uh, like restaurant bar guy that befriended the old man. Yeah. Yeah. The old man. Mm-hmm. He was awesome. He was my favorite. I mean, the funniest was by far the idiot, ugly fat son. <laughs> like he made me laugh without saying anything, just being on screen, his face. He was like, I was like, that's hilarious. But the little uh, in shopkeeper, man, whatever, he, whatever he was doing over there, he was my favorite character for sure. Was he your favorite? Because, what? Why? You could just say because it's fun. I mean, that's fine. Movie's I think he. Big. I think he just had a lot at stake. Honestly, like he, he he basically gave up on his town, and I don't think he really believed that Samurai Man was going to save the day until he heard the story of the Samurai Man saving that family, and he kind of saw hope, and he was helping like how he tricked the idiot man into carrying the samurai in the casket. So that that's whole my, scene was so good and funny. Yeah. I love that scene. And then even when the samurai comes out and he was like, well, that was amusing. <laughs> I was like, it, not just for you, buddy. Yeah. It I, yeah. He also, yeah. The actor just did a great job. He had a great smile. He was a, just a, like a really, really important character. That guy's outside a, of the main character. That guy's in a lot of Kurosawa's films. Yeah, he he would reuse a lot of actors. Um, nice. Yeah, he, like in Sinjuro, the guy that plays the villain in this, the, the the dude with the gun who dies, he's in Sinjuro, but he plays a different character. So like, I like it. He brings. Yeah, I, he, I like it when directors like just fall in love with their actors and just use them for everything. Yeah, that's what he would do. Well, and I did like that. That was a good turning point for him because, like, the entire movie, he was like the bartender, barkeep guy, was so mad um, about him coming into town. And then all of a sudden, after this like turning point happened, mm-hmm. it was also a turning point for him because then he was it's like, "Oh, static. you are a good he guy." Was happy, yeah. And he was just like, "You're unusually happy today." <laughs> well, and he was active too. Like before, he was like, he wanted nothing to do. He wanted his shop to be closed, no one come in. And then he was actively helping Samurai Man and getting involved and doing yeah. stuff. He was good. Last thing I want to say, yeah, my go. favorite line, because you said your favorite line earlier. Yeah. My favorite line was basically the last line when he like the crazy man that would ding the bell. He like called him over and he runs over and he's like, hi. And he's like, go hang yourself. And he's like, hi. And then he runs away. And I was like, I died laughing. I was like, that, was that killed me. His face when he's just like, hi, <laughs> he runs away. 
He was so scared. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That was one of the best lines. Oh, shit. I think the other best me. line was what you were saying earlier about when he was carrying, they were carrying the um, samurai and the, when he was like, convince him to help you. And he like helped him carry the body, like the dumb one. And <laughs> the dumb one is about to open it and like carry the dead body. He's like, aren't you supposed to be looking for something? And he was like, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm going to be in such trouble. And he runs away. My brother's going to beat me. Even though what he was looking for is literally yeah, before right he... God, so good. The way to convince him is he was like, oh, are you afraid of dead bodies? And the guy was like, excuse me. I'm not afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid of nothing. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Just I'm say- afraid. <laughs> God, that yeah. was such a funny character. My yeah. grandma loved him. That's she amazing. was like, my grandma said, how did this director find so many ugly people for this movie? <laughs> there were. <laughs> there were. Not, this was not the most attractive cast. Not I've the most seen. attractive cast. Well, a lot of yeah. it is like the way they're they're holding their faces like on purpose. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you're getting a for lot sure. of like, like, again, it goes back to Kabuki theater. It's a lot of like argh, grimacing. and yeah. yeah. God, that's so funny. So your grandma liked the movie? Oh, yeah, she loved it. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, that's amazing. You got the grandma approval. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's got good taste. Yeah. All right, we can wrap it up. All right, let's. Um, I will say it was nominated for one Oscar: costume design, black and white. La Dolce Vita won that award. Um, and this year, West Side Story won Best Picture. Um, so from the aggregators, an 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb, a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 93 on Metacritic. Um, I can go first. I've got my score. I liked this movie a whole like I think 10 points more than I did Fistful of Dollars. I'm giving this one a 92, I think. Um, so I guess maybe nine points. I think I gave Fistful of Dollars an 83. Um, I think it was really well done. I think it was it, it was even more gripping. And like it, it held your attention more than a fistful of dollars did. There are a few times in that one where you're like, all right, like let's get on with it. And like maybe could have been edited a little bit further down fistful of dollars. But this one was, you mentioned it, it was a tight, tight script, tight editing. It was nice and quick and held the attention. And it was, it was just an awesome movie. Sage. I, I'll give it just this. A straightforward 90. Um, that's partially because, like, how could it be better? I don't know. Could it, like, could it be worse? I don't think so. Like, it, it just, it was very, very, very good. Very rewatchable. Um, I think probably the only thing that's holding it back was its age. And that's, like, nothing. It, for context, it gave Citizen Kane, like, a 60. Like, I thought Citizen Kane was just boring, uninteresting, did not hold my attention. But this, even though it was made in 1961, it not having the graphics and beauty as a lot of like the newer movies, its story was very fundamentally sound and amazing. So I think the only way it could be better is if it was like remastered and cut, but then that would almost taint the original. So I don't know. I think it's just a 90. I'm going to go with Anya that on that 90. I'm on the same boat. I think it was like when I, I think about like, I mean, all these numbers are usually just a gut feeling. Um, and my gut feeling about this is that I really liked it. I loved a lot about it. I don't know what I would say was wrong about it or what I would change about it. Um, 
and that definitely puts it in like the the nine out of ten kind of category. Um, and yeah, I mean, I could watch, I could rewatch this movie many, many, many times over. It'll be memorable. Um, yeah, a lot of reasons why I loved it. So awesome. Do you have a score that you'd give it? Hundred. Hundred. <laughs> I, I like it. I don't it. know. Arbitrarily, I. Yeah. You know, I mean, this movie's amazing. I don't know. Yeah. Ninety-five hundred. All of his movies are like this. They're all great. Like I, I don't know what they mean. Like, yeah, he, he, he's created a category, um, all, all his own. He also he tried to kill himself, by the way, in the seventies. Really? Yeah, because he, he was so criticized by um, Japanese film critics and and just the film world in general over there. They said he was too Western. It wasn't making true Japanese cinema. He felt not accepted by his culture. Huh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, Lucas and Coppola, like I think, flew to Japan to tell him, like you, you, you mean so much. Like you, you, you have to understand what you, what your work's meant to us over the years. Like you can't, you can't leave. And they've they financed uh, his comeback movie in the eighties uh, Kagemusha. Which uh, man, that movie's a, that's a ride. That's a long movie. <laughs> <That one's, laughs> It's, it's not my favorite of his. It is. It is. It, that movie is fucking nuts. Like it is. It is. It's, it's, it's the first samurai film he'd made in, in decades, and it is a uh, man. <laughs> that movie just goes for it. It's like a sequence where someone has, like a, it. has a vision of a big egg, and out of the egg comes a, a, a samurai in full armor, and he like cracks out of the egg with a sword and background is like blood red and there's smoke and he's like coming at the camera it is nuts <laughs> i mean the movie, the movie is nuts like it's it's wild it's so slow paced it's kind of it's it's the only film he's made where i'm like is this a mess like i don't know yeah. <laughs> where everything else is so drilled in and i'm just watching i watched that movie and i was like what is happening <laughs> this is insane anyway yeah no i i, I don't i can't score his films i think they're they're just so unlike anything that even existed around them, even still exists today. You can see how much it's influenced everything after it. Um, it feels so modern still watching it. And like, he did so much without having to move his camera. His camera movements are just pan and tilt. It's on a tripod. But you still get this like this like sense of, of movement and um, and speed with his images without having to put it on a dolly or have a steady camera or whatever. And... Um, I just think from like a directing a directing standpoint, like what he's doing here is is uh, I mean the word like masterclass is thrown around a lot, but this one really is the simplicity, the cleanliness. It's what the Japanese call the conservation of line, you know, and it's it's there and it, it is. I I every time I every time I've seen it, it's, it's a lot. It's it's I'm I'm always taken aback by just how much thought has gone into every single frame, every single lighting choice, all the blocking, the staging, all of it. And you just don't see that any like much anymore. It's rare. It's rare if it's rare for then, but man, it is mm -hmm. now like, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a really impressive piece of work. I'm really glad you guys liked it. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, he, I think among this crowd, he is more than loved. That's good. I was, <laughs> oh, yeah. and this is the first one. So I had a, like a little worry. I was like, man, what if I go on this thing and all three of them are like, this shit's boring. 
Oh, fuck now, me, I guess. We only why is everyone always it wasn't, Why was it in black and white, not color? Yeah. <laughs> every Man. It seems like every guest is worried. I mean, I mean yeah, you, you know. I mean, it, it makes sense. You're you're putting your opinion out yeah. there, and you're it's up for judgment. Like the it it makes it like I I still feel when I pick movies where it's like if I pick a movie and you guys don't like it, it's like ah damn, like the it's like there's part of like my decision making process that I'm like I fucked that up, even though sure. it doesn't really matter because it was my opinion compared to your guys, and they're just different opinions that's the subjective part of this that's like so hard i don't mind yeah for most movies i like i wouldn't i don't mind if you don't like it but for this one it's like like like, are you guys stupid like this one's so this is this one's a big deal yeah Yeah. so yeah no i'm I'm really glad you liked it i joking about being stupid if you didn't like it it's fine no it's all right they're stupid for not like megan kalia so that's okay i was gonna say like at least you didn't come like with melancholia. Yeah. If mm-hmm. you came with melancholia, I probably wouldn't be here. I mean, that's I, a movie I that's, said, yeah. Tate, Jacob, I'm sick. Can't do it. I'm you, out COVID. Here. You know what, though? Like, I actually really like Citizen Kane, though. I think that movie deserves I did talk to him about this. all the credit that it gets. It's. I think that it's a pretty incredible piece of work. But you have to view it contextually. You and, have and I to think- be a film guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's maybe a little bit. Say you're becoming one. You're on a film podcast. Well, you're supposed no, 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 no. to be. Well, it's one. <laughs> I'm a consumer. Things, it's one of those things that, like, this is why I told Tate, and this this is kind of the truth of it. There's this. There's a. There's a. Um, how do I describe it? Basically, like, there's a term, like, called the language of cinema, and we're all familiar with it. The way movies that we watch cut together and they move. Uh, how like scenes knock together um, editorially, how like things are put together, how like shot and reverse works, all these things, right? Like, and it's second nature to us. It's just how we observe movies. It's how we've always watched them. That language was really created by Citizen Kane. Like no one would ever like put together a movie that felt the way we would describe as modern up until that point. If you watch movies that were released around Citizen Kane, like around the same year, they feel like they're from a different world. They feel like when you watch something that's like, and this is a Chaplin film. Whereas like Chaplin made really great films. But you know watching mm-hmm. them like, all right, so like they didn't have like the ability to like speak in this film. Or whatever, right? Like, you know, his films are great. But it's immediately under you immediately understand watching it like, all right. This is a, this is from a certain time. Kane is not like that. It is, you know, it is slow and it's not like it doesn't pace itself the way modern films do, but it visually moves the way modern films do. And the the story is a very small story. And that's something that is, you know, it's just yeah, you put it through that prism. It's 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 a pretty titanic piece of work, especially to think that that Wells was 26 when he made it, which is insane. And uh, it was his first film, which is also insane. And that he also decided to do a hit piece on the guy running like all the media at the time and Mm -hmm. didn't really care about the outcome. Also insane. You know, now like it's easy to take that kind of stuff for granted. But when you contextualize all of that into the, in the forties, no one was doing that. And it ended his career before it started basically too. Yeah, because I remember when we re- reviewed that one, we talked about how 
uh, Citizen Kane basically got shut down from being in the theaters yeah. because of the people that were in power. Yeah, because of Hearst. And the people that had like the, mm-hmm. the control over the theaters at the time. Yeah. And so like it it totally like like it took ten years for it to ever get really picked up. Right. As far as like a yeah, because the people that he was attacking. And that's and that's my only thing with it. Like I it's not a movie I watch a lot and it's not something that like I would even say is in my top five or ten favorite films of all time. But but I do respect it because it, it definitely like broke the mold and created kind of like the way we watch films now. There's there was like three movies that were happening around that time that did it, and it's one of them. That's my that's my thing on Kane. Kane is probably one of those movies that we'll maybe watch again at some point and be like, I have more respect for. Yeah, but yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I could definitely see my if I <laughs> Sage maybe not. Yeah, Sage it's probably won't. I, I respect that it broke the mold. Don't get me wrong there. But breaking the mold, you pave the way for greater things to happen. And so that's kind of where I'm like, good job. You've made all, you kind of opened the doors for all these fantastic movies that we've gotten to enjoy over the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years. But like, I mean, you just broke the mold. So it's it's a thing, but you know. And it's still a product of its time too. It still has like yeah. the tropes of like the way stories were told. Then you know, what news is up in the mind? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, we were so scared when that first 20, 30 minutes were going because Jacob picked it and it like started playing. And like fifteen minutes in, we all three just looked at each other and we were like, "What is going on? Like, <laughs> is this the whole be like movie this the whole time?" <laughs> yeah. Oh man, remember the scary bird? Yeah. Like, yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> that was wild. That was memorable. Um, all right. Let's wrap up here. Um, that is an average score of 91 for Yojimbo. Chris, do you want people to follow you on places? Do you want to have anything to plug? Yeah, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> you find me well, you find me on Instagram, Chris F. Ton. Like I I don't I post mostly pictures of my wife and then like and then stories <laughs> with movies that I really like. Um There you are. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. My next pick. Um, has already been recorded to break the fourth wall. But my next pick is The Last Flag Flying from Richard Linklater. Um, 30 years after they served together in Vietnam, a former Navy corpsman, Larry Doc Shepard, reunites with his old buddies, former Marines Sal Nealon and Reverend Richard Mueller to bury his son, a young Marine killed in the Iraq War, starring Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne, and Steve Carell. I don't know if you guys want to react to it. We've already recorded the podcast. It's kind of hard to react to something that you've already seen and reviewed. <laughs> and recorded. Wow. I'm so excited. It's going to be great. <laughs> Steve Carell. Have you funny seen guy. I haven't seen it. That's why fine. Yeah. I know the film. I haven't seen it. Streaming on Amazon Prime. Stoke um, is alive. Yes. So um, if you would like to get into contact with us, you can email us at gd4ampodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at gd4gd.movies. You can follow us on Twitter at gd4gd underscore movies. Leave us a five-star rating on Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts as well as a review. And if not, I'm going to lop your arm off. Bitch, that was mine. (laughs) I'm going to shoot you with my arms in my sweatshirt. All right, we will catch you next week at the movies.
frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. A mechanic can be a panic, but just a good-looking panic. He's looking at you, kid. And any barmaid. Oh, It's bold in terms of jerking people around, but I may have gone too far in a few places. Hey, everybody, we're all going to get late. Yeah.